Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. As well. Now, this morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as well. And to do that, I'd like to draw attention to this wonderful psalm, Psalm 110. This psalm is, in my opinion, and I don't have a whole PowerPoint thing this weekend, but we will uh, resume that uh, in the next couple of weeks when I'm back here. But Psalm 110 is, in my opinion, uh, the greatest psalm in all of the book of Psalms. This is a very important passage, and its importance is reflected in the fact that it's the most often quoted passage in the Brit HaDashah, in the New Covenant Scriptures. So in my count, as I started looking them up and reading through them, this passage was quoted or alluded to no less than 30 times by the writers of the New Covenant Scriptures. So this is an important passage for us to get a hold of. It's important because it's focused solely on the Messiah of Israel. And I want to show you some things that I've learned as I was looking at this passage. If we were to divide the passage up, it really breaks down into three parts. There are seven verses. So verses one to three reveal to us the divine Messiah. Our Messiah is God come in the flesh. He is the divine one. Verse three is Messiah who is our priest king. He's our divine king in verses 1 to 3, but in verse 4, he is our priest king after the order of Melchizedek. And when you look at verses 5, 6, and 7, he is our victorious king. He is our warrior king. He is the one that will subdue the peoples of the world and bring judgment upon those who are his enemies. He's the victorious one. And he's victorious because as the psalm ends, you see him in his state of sort of relaxation and rest. So let's take a look at this a little more carefully. And as we do so, I want you to be thinking about the fact that we're going to be observing what our Messiah has done for us that we might become his children, we might become his brethren. So as we're thinking about who he is, let's also remember that we're getting ready to partake of those elements that reflect what he did in our behalf in order to bring deliverance and salvation. Now, the reason this psalm is so critical, one of the ways we could see how critical this psalm is, is how it is placed in the book of Psalms. There's 150 psalms. And the book of Psalms is not merely a collection of poetry. 
It is not just a collection of psalms that people have written and somehow made their way into a book called the Book of Psalms. The Book of Psalms is actually divided up into five parts. It was put together with a particular purpose in mind. And the overarching purpose of the book of Psalms is to reveal to us the nature and character of the Messiah and what he would do for us. When you look at Psalm 110, it is placed in a particular part of the Psalms. The three Psalms before it and the three Psalms after it are linked by Psalm 110. So Psalm 107 through 109 really talks about one thing. All three of those psalms are a plea for deliverance. All three of those psalms ask God to bring deliverance because of the attack that I am under. Psalms 111, 12, and 13 are all three psalms are psalms of praise for the deliverance they experienced. So Psalms 117, Eight and nine are the psalmist crying out to God, deliver me because I am undone. And unless you deliver me, I am lost. Psalm 111, 12 and 13, each one of them begins with praise the Lord because the deliverance has occurred. Now, the question is, how did these deliverances happen? Psalm 110 tells us how it came about. The one spoken of in Psalm 10 is the one who brought about our deliverance and is the reason for our praise. That's how these Psalms fit together and why Psalm 110 is on the lips of all the writers of the New Covenant Scriptures as they speak of Messiah. Because what are the New Covenant Scriptures about? It's about our need for deliverance. Deliverance from our sin, but ultimately deliverance from a fallen world which will come about when Messiah returns, and then we will all give him praise. Psalm 110 is the connecting point between both of these concerns. It is the one spoken of in Psalm 10 who will bring our deliverance. It is the one spoken of in Psalm 110 who is deserving of our praise. Why? Because he's our divine king, our priest king, our warrior king. And therefore, it is to him that we give our praise. So let's take a look at this. Notice it says, a psalm of David. That is in the original text. This means to say, this is a psalm written by David. This is not a psalm about David. It is a psalm written by him. And this phrase, a psalm of David, comes up all throughout the psalms because they are the psalms written by David. No other place is it ever assumed that it's a psalm about David, and thus Psalm 110 ought not to be thought of as a psalm about him. It's a psalm by him, as he reflects on the needs that we have, and as he thinks about the great God whom we serve. And notice what David writes. He says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that phrase is on the lips of Messiah himself. In fact, in all the accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this statement is quoted by Yeshua. It's quoted by him when he enters into Jerusalem at the time of Passover. He's ushered into the city on a donkey. 
He comes at a time when the lambs are being brought into Jerusalem to be examined to become the Passover lambs. They had to be without spot and blemish. And those lambs that passed mustard were accepted as the Passover lambs that would be offered for the people of Israel. Yeshua comes in at the same time and he, like these lambs, are examined. He's examined to see, is he truly the Messiah of Israel? Is the unblemished, spotless Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world? And so the Herodians, those Jews who supported Rome, they ask Yeshua, to whom do we pay taxes? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And Yeshua responds, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God the things that are God. And they find that he is without spot and blemish. If he had said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, they would have said, ha, how can he be the Messiah who would support Rome, our oppressors? If he had said, only render to God the things that are God, don't pay your taxes to Rome, they would have executed him, they would have uh, arrested him prematurely, not according to his timetable, but according to the Roman timetable. They attempted to skewer him on the horns of the dilemma. But Yeshua is able to show his spotlessness by breaking the horns of that dilemma by saying, render to Caesar the things due to Caesar and make sure you render to God the things due to him as well. It would be later that the Sadducees would ask him a question. And they would talk about a woman who was married to a man. And this man died. She remarried, not just once, twice, three times, four times, five times, ten times. And all of her husbands die on her. You have to wonder what kind of a woman this was. Did they take their lives? (laughs) Or was it something else? But all of them die. And as we might expect, she dies too. And the Sadducees say to Yeshua, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Yeshua's response is very interesting. Yeshua says... You do not know the power of God, nor do you know the word of God. Because if you had known the power of God, you wouldn't question the reliability of the resurrection. Because God is powerful enough to take that which is dead and give it life. And if you had known the word of God enough, you would know that in heaven we are not like we are on earth. And no one is given in marriage one to another, much like the angels in heaven are not married. And Yeshua is demonstrated as being unspotted and unblemished. He's being examined. And he's examined by the Herodians, by the Sadducees. The Pharisees will say, what is the great commandment? And Yeshua will say, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And then they ask him, with respect to John's ministry, that herald of the Messiah who had come calling on the people of Israel to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They ask, he asks them, was his ministry of God or not? Another way of saying, was he a prophet or not? And the Jewish leaders said, thought to themselves, now wait a minute, this is a tough one. Because if we say he was not a prophet, the people will rebel against us because everyone acknowledges he is a prophet. And if we say he is a prophet, they will, Yeshua will say, well, then why didn't you believe him when he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? 
So they said, so he said to them, they said to him, we cannot tell. And he said, well, then I will not answer you one of your questions. But he then put a question to them. And he said, how is it? Or he asked first, whose son is the Messiah of Israel to be? And they say, he's to be the son of David. And Yeshua then says, if he is to be the son of David, how is it that David, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, how is it that David could call him his Lord? And of course, they didn't respond. In other words, the Messiah of Israel is to be David's son. But according to this psalm, which Yeshua quotes, David called the Messiah his own Lord. How is the Messiah both the son of David and the Lord of David? How is it possible for a descendant of David to be acknowledged by David as his own Lord? Now keep in mind, David is the greatest king Israel ever had. And so David is acknowledging that there is one greater than him. While at the same time, this one that's greater than him is a descendant of his. And of course, in the ancient world, a descendant of one could never be greater than the one he descended from. So how is it that that David in this psalm can call him my Lord? And the answer, of course, is the incarnation of the Messiah. Yeshua is born, comes into our world as a son of David, as a descendant of Judah, so that he could be Israel's king. But he has to come from somewhere. Where does he come from? He comes from heaven. It's very interesting. There's only one place where Yeshua speaks about his birth. He says, for this world, I've been born to be a king. That's the only place he says it to Pilate. Every other place when he speaks about his presence, it's always, I have come into the world to do whatever it is he comes to do or says. I have come that they might have life and to have it more abundantly. It's so strange. You and I don't speak that way. We talk about where we were born. But Yeshua talks about where he came from over and over again. Now look at this psalm. This passage, David says, the Lord. Notice, first of all, the word Lord is all capital. That's because that's the sacred name of God. We might use the word Jehovah. It's the unpronounceable sacred name of God. The Lord. God in his glory. The triune God speaks to, it says, now notice, the triune God is speaking To David's Lord. Notice there it's in small letters. Capital L, small O-R-D. That's the word Adoni, my Lord. The Lord, David's telling us, spoke to my Lord. Now this word my Lord is very fascinating. Because most of the time when it is used, it's used of another individual. So for example, Eliezer, Abraham's servant... When he's told to get a wife for Isaac, when he is asked about this, he is told that his Lord, he says, Adoni, my Lord Abraham, sent me to get a wife for his son Isaac. uses the word Adoni. And generally, the word Adoni is used, can be used, of a human being. But there's two places I found, only two places, 
in the Hebrew scriptures where Adoni is used of someone who is not a human being. For example, in Joshua chapter 5 verse 14, Joshua is getting ready to attack the city of Jericho. And he is met by one whom he refers to as the captain of the Lord of hosts. And when the captain of the Lord of hosts appears before him, he calls him Adoni, my Lord. And he does two things that are interesting. One, it says he worshipped him. Now, if the captain of the Lord of hosts was not God, he never would have accepted worship. Because the scripture is clear, worship the Lord your God and only him you will serve, Deuteronomy. Yeshua quoted that passage to Satan. When Satan said, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And Yeshua says, we are not to worship anyone but the Lord. So who is Joshua bowing down to worshiping? He's the one he refers to as Adoni, my Lord. And you know what the captain of the Lord of hosts says to Joshua? When he bows down to worship, he says, that's not enough. You are to take off the sandals that are on your feet because the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. That's the same words that the Lord said to Moses in the burning bush. So why was this ground holy? Because the holy God was standing before him whom he was rightfully to worship. But the word Adoni is used of the captain of the Lord of hosts. That's the word used here. The only other place is found in the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, it's found in chapter 6, verse 13. And it's there that Gideon, one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture. I say one of my favorite characters because Gideon was a coward. Now, I've not thought of myself much as a coward, but if you saw me today, I was very quiet I don't want to think of myself as being cowardly. I was self-restrained when there was a conflict brewing. Some might have thought I was a coward. And in some instances, I must admit, as we all must, that we are cowardly at certain intervals, certain moments in our lives. Gideon was a cowardly man. In fact, he was living at a time when the Midianites were attacking Israel relentlessly. And so the Israelites were afraid to do anything out in public because the Midianites were like invading, taking things and taking off. So Gideon, to avoid losing his stuff, was threshing wheat at night. Now you and I both know the winds usually die down at night but rise in the afternoon as things start heating up and cooling and all those conditions start occurring so that when you start winnowing the wheat, it's able to blow the shaft. But Gideon was frightened of the Midianites. He didn't want them to see chaff, you know, chaff blowing up in the air and then they'd say, ah, there's some wheat, let's go take it. So he did it at night when no one would see him, but the winds aren't blowing so well, so how much work was he able to get done? But to reinsure they wouldn't see him, He also was doing this in a well. So that there he is in this well, throwing things up, hoping some stuff will remain so that he wouldn't be seen. And God appears to him. It says, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. And I love the phrase he used. He says, oh, Gideon, mighty man of valor. And Gideon must have looked around and said, who, me? You know? 
And God says, indeed you. I see something in you that you don't even see in yourself. And when Gideon hears his voice, he says, Adoni, my Lord. So the captain of the Lord of hosts and the angel of the Lord are the only two places apart from Psalm 110 where Adoni is used not of an individual like Abraham or someone else, but is used of a divine person. And I believe that's how it's being used here as well. Now, check this out. This is so cool when you start seeing these things. So he says, the Lord said to my Adoni, and look what he tells him. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this one is able to sit at the right hand of the Lord. Why? Because he's placing him there. And he must share something of his character in order to sit at the right hand of God himself. And notice this. He says, you'll stay here until I make your enemies your footstool. The word footstool, interestingly enough, in the book of Psalms is only used in reference to God. The enemies of God as his, are always referred to as the footstool of God. This would be the only exception. But it's no exception. The reason why the enemies are seen as the one seated at the right hand of the Lord as their footstool is because he too, like the one that he's sitting next to, is divine in nature. That's what this whole psalm is telling us. He's our divine king who alone can sit at the right hand of God the Father. He, like the captain of the Lord of hosts, the angel of the Lord, can be called Idoni. He, like the Lord, can, be, can see his enemies as becoming his own footstool. Used only of God. And thus he is divine. And look what else it says. He says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. All of a sudden, he's no longer at the right hand of the Father, but his mighty scepter is coming from Zion. So where is Zion? That's Jerusalem. Where is Jerusalem? It's in the land of Israel. Where is the land of Israel? On planet Earth. Between verse 1 and verse 2, he's been in heaven, now he's on the earth. Now, the question is, how does he get there? How did he get from being at the right hand of the Father to ruling? His scepter of rule is coming forth from Jerusalem. He has to come to earth. How does he come to earth? Look at verse verse 3. He says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Notice, he not only rules over his enemies who are forced to worship him, but he rules with those who voluntarily align themselves with him. So he says, on the one hand, your enemies will be your footstool, but your people will offer themselves willingly in the day of your power when you reign as king. And look at this. They'll come in holy garments. You and I are destined to be glorified. You and I are going to be wearing holy Garments, you know, holy garments. See, if I was African-American, holy garments. I mean, holy garments. Think of that. We're going to wear angelic, heavenly garments of glorification. And we will wear them willingly, supportively, worshipfully before our king who will descend and come to earth. Now, check this out, because this is a wild phrase. 
In verse 3, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. That little phrase, the dew of your youth will be yours. Every commentary I've read, every article I've read, have pointed out that phrase is unintelligible in the Hebrew. It cannot be understood in the Hebrew text. Evidently, the consonants, the vowels are such that it doesn't make any sense. Even reading that doesn't make sense. But you know what's really interesting? When you look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament by the 70 rabbis of Alexandria some 200 years before Yeshua, no axe to grind, they translate it in the Greek this way. They say, from the womb of the morning shall I beget you. Now, that is very much like Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's how the rabbis translated that phrase with certain pointings on the Hebrew text. From the womb of the morning, I have begotten you. I believe this is a phrase about the virgin birth of Messiah. It answers the question how he gets from heaven to earth. He's born of a virgin through the miraculous workings of God himself. And as the book of Matthew and John all point out to us, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and that which was conceived in her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah seven fourteen: a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And what are we reading here? That from the dew of the womb of the morning, I shall beget you. It's speaking to, that's how the rabbis understood it. It's speaking about how he gets from heaven to earth through a miraculous conception. Messiah comes to earth. Somehow he's got to get there because that's what verse 2 is saying. And verse 3 tells us how. He is the divine king of Israel. But now look at this. The shortest verse is verse 4. And that's because verse 4 is the linkage between 1 to 3 and 5 to 7. This divine king is able to connect with us because he's our priest king. Now, notice what he says. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Isn't that a great phrase? When God makes a promise, he never goes back on it. When Yeshua says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, it's just like this. The Lord has sworn he will not go back on it. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our salvation is secure in him. When Paul says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Messiah Yeshua, it's like him saying, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. I have set my love upon you, Scripture says. And so here, the Lord makes a promise he will not go back on. He will not change his mind. What will he do? Look what he says. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this divine king is also a priest king, but he's a unique priest king. He's unique because he's not a Levitical priest. He's a Melchizedekian priest. And Melchizedek, Genesis 14, was the priest king of Jerusalem, of ancient Jerusalem, Salem. So he's saying his priesthood will be like that of Melchizedek, not like that of Aaron. Everything will be changed. Not only does he say you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but even the idea of being a priest king is unique, but the book of Zechariah tells us Messiah would be a priest. 
It says in chapter 6 that he would be a priest. He will build the temple of the Lord. Even he will build the temple of the Lord and he will reign upon its throne. No temple that the Jewish people built has a throne in it. No priest ever reigned as a priest. But this king will reign not only as a king, but also as a priest. And that's what the psalmist says. Not only would he be a priest king, not only would his priesthood be that of Melchizedek, but look at this. It would be a priesthood forever. How can one have an eternal priesthood unless he's eternal in nature? The only way that this one can be a priest forever is he has to be forever. Now, the scripture says that Messiah of Israel would be the first and the last, right? Book of Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega. But let me just correct something. While the text is inspired by God, John's writing is not technically philosophically accurate. It is inspired and it is what God wanted written. But philosophically, theologically, it's not quite accurate. Because Yeshua is not merely the first and the last. He's before the first and he's after the last. Because he's eternal. Now, of course, that's what the writers mean to say. He's the first and the last. He's the alpha and the omega. But he's really before there was ever a first. And he's after whenever there might be a last. Because he always is. He's the great I am. And in order for this priest king to be for forever, he too must be eternal. So this is a very unique priest king. He's a divine king, but he's also a priest king. But then look at these last verses. Look at verse 5. And these, it is his priest kingship that unites these two aspects of him as divine and him as victorious. Look at this. Verse 8. The Lord is at your right hand. Now the word here is Adonai. Now, the Lord is at your right. He's sitting at the right hand of the Lord. And now he says, the Lord speaking to Jehovah, right? Speaking to God. Because we just were told, verse 1, Adoni, David's Lord, is sitting at the right hand. And now he reiterates, the Lord, that is the Adoni one, is sitting at your, the Lord's right hand. Everyone with me? Now, why is that important? Because while the word Adoni, my Lord, is used of human beings, except for the two places I showed you, the word Adonai is never used of human beings. In other words, Eliezer may refer to Abraham as Adoni, but he would never say Abraham is Adonai. Oh, no, 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 no. Adonai is only used of God. And so Psalm verse 5 is saying the one who is at the right hand of the Lord is now being called Adonai. And unless that's the only exception in all the Hebrew scriptures where that one, where someone other than God is called Adonai. Every other place, it's only the Lord. And so the argument is, it should be used here as well. In each place, in other words, the divine king, the priest king, the warrior king is referred to as God. He's called Adoni, my Lord, in the first verse, seated at the right hand of Jehovah, the Lord. He's called a priest forever, an eternal priest, in verse 3. 
And now he's called Adonai in verse 5. But look at this. He will execute judgment on the nations. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. By the way, that phrase, the day of his wrath, is only used of God in all of the scripture. The day of his wrath is the day of God's wrath. And so Psalm 110 is about the wrath of the king, who is none other than God. But it's not just about his wrath, it's about his victory. He'll shatter chiefs, he'll over the wide earth. But then I love verse 7. And then he will drink from the brook by the way. It's like a warrior who's finished his battle, was victorious, and now he takes his rest at the edge of the brook to get a breather, to get some water, and is at rest. His head is lifted high because he has been victorious in vanquishing his enemies. And thus it says, therefore, he will lift up his head as the warrior victorious king of Israel and of all who embrace him. So as we prepare our hearts, as we're thinking about the one who gave his life a ransom for many, this passage doesn't tell us about what he would do when he would come to earth, except be our priest. And so it doesn't explain as a priest, he would offer a sacrifice as priests do, And he would offer himself as the sacrifice, as other passages tell us, only that he would be a priest forever. But as we come to the table this morning, we think about our Messiah. He's divine. He's God come in the flesh. He's born miraculously, conceived by the Spirit of God. And in addition to being our divine king, he's our priest king who is our sacrifice and offers himself willingly for us. And as our divine priest king, he will come victoriously sometime in the future when he will return. And he will establish his kingdom on earth. He will lift up his head, receive that crown, and reign forever and ever. That is the one who we worship. That is the one whom we praise. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this morning. We give you praise for who you are and what you have provided for us. Our priest king has come. Our divine king has offered himself for us. The warrior king has vanquished the enemies of our souls and has united us unto yourself. But will one day return and destroy all those who would oppose him. So, Lord, we worship you. We praise you. We lift up your name on high. And now as we come to observe these elements that reflect upon your priestly ministry particularly, we remember that on that night that you celebrated Passover with your disciples, you took the bread and you said, this is my body broken for you. You took the wine and you said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the remission of sins. Lord, as we observe these elements, we remember what you have done, but we also glorify you for who you are, the divine priest, warrior, king. And you are our king. You are our priest. And you are our warrior who fights our battles for us. We give you praise, honor, and glory. 
And as we receive the elements, we are reminded that we are to do so in a worthy manner. That means, first of all, that we've invited Yeshua, the divine king, the priest king, the warrior king, into our lives. That we've acknowledged what he has done in offering himself a sacrifice for sin has been offered for me, for us. And we have accepted it, embraced it, and have acknowledged him to be who he is. And it means that for those of us who have done that, that we also remember that we are ones who always do what is contrary to your desires. We too sin. And we are in need of confessing our sin, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we come seeking your forgiveness, seeking your cleansing, and acknowledging you as our provision. So Lord, we worship you and we praise you and we thank you for this time. For we ask in Yeshua's name, amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.